Hello, I'm Chris Alvarez and welcome to Spacewalks Money Talks, where we talk about the business, policy, and technology behind space exploration and commercialization. We're on the web at spacewalksmoneytalks.com. Thank you for listening. I'm speaking with Rod Pyle, author of Space 2.0 and also editor of Ad Astra Magazine, the magazine for the National Space Society, which I'm a member of. Um, and also, you've written numerous books, and uh, you've also done special effects for some sci-fi shows. Yeah, so I recounted the books the other day because I hadn't looked for a while. And um, if I include the ones I've done for NASA, I have 17. Mm-hmm. If I don't include NASA, it's 15. And those were a couple of really fun projects. They were for Jet Propulsion Laboratory mm-hmm. Uh, technical highlights, 2017, 2018. I didn't, I didn't do the title, obviously, yeah. but you know, the, the mandate was pick 30 really cool technical engineering stories and make them accessible for NASA headquarters and Congress people. And I thought, that, that's my audience. Yes. <laughs> so that was great fun. And the visual effects part was I'd kind of stumbled around in my career at TV commercials and other heinous crimes for a while. Mm-hmm. And then, um, a friend of mine who I'd actually hired back in my TV commercial days, he was the, I, I was the first guy that hired him in Hollywood, went on to be a visual effects supervisor on uh, Star Trek Next Generation. Mm-hmm. So for about two years, I was begging him. I said, just, just let me come work for you for a week so I could say I did. So finally he got me on to the very last bit of TNG and then for three years of Deep Space Nine. Mm-hmm. And that was great because that was the time when we were still working with miniatures with physical models. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I mean, there's nothing wrong with CGI, yeah. but being able to touch those things. And I'll just close that with, uh, we did one photo shoot for a book cover. Let's see the book cover counter. I think it was a Simon Schuster book cover, which is, you know, their captive brand of Paramount at the time. And we had to go up to Paramount storage shed in Pacoima, California, which is, you know, storage is always out in undesirable land, which is where Pacoima was. Um, and uh, so we opened this enormous 10-foot crate, and there was the Enterprise 1701D from the motion picture. Mm-hmm. Uh, excuse me, 1701A. Mm-hmm. So the the one right after the TV Enterprise. And it's an 8-foot model, cost $180,000 to build. We were pulling out of mothballs after probably a decade. Mm-hmm. And mounted it up on the stage and shot that, and it was like going to church. It was so beautiful. That 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 model was just unbelievable. Which is why it sold for one hundred eighty thousand dollars when they auctioned it off years later. Oh wow! Do you know? Uh, I actually interviewed Michael and Denise Akuda. Mm-hmm. Um, if you know them, so I do. They're charming people, and Mike was the art director at the studio. We were down the street in a big tin shed because we were non-union, so we were kind of you know shoved down the way. Hmm. Uh, Mike was on the lot, and of all the people involved, I mean, him and Rick Sternbach, and there's a bunch of guys that were great people, but um, Mike was probably, above all, the keeper of the faith, the, the the guy who kept the flame burning late at night to make sure that every script was accurate within, within canon, hmm. and that nothing went off the rails. And then, if you saw the um, remastered uh, original series, the digital remastering they did of that, hmm. He rode roughshod over that, and I thought, you know, for the money, which wasn't a lot, they didn't have a lot to spend, um, the results they got were spectacular, and Mike kept it feeling the way it should, mm-hmm. but it's watchable for a new generation, yeah. which is was an incredible achievement. So, yeah, that guy, he's he's one of the one of the gods. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Entities, both. Yeah. So, um, all right, so let's talk about the book, though. Um, Space oh, that. 2.0. You bet. Yes. Okay. Um, because the podcast is focused on this one is focused on space, business, tech, and policy. So, um, so what does the book focus on? Let, tell me about it. So, if I had to coin a uh, an elevator pitch for it, I'd say it's it's the the handbook for the new space age, which mm-hmm. actually is kind of the elevator pitch because it was not an easy sell, which I'll tell you about later if you want to know. Mm-hmm. But basically, it's a look at new space from a couple of perspectives. One perspective is I start with the first space age and kind of move through space one point five, mm-hmm. which is just my term for the shuttle and space station years. Mm-hmm which is kind of short-changing shuttle and space station, but 
I had to come up with the term, so that was it. And then look at this new space age that's upon us. And it really is, I'm sure you, you and your audience know, kind of started, there were kind of fledgling efforts in the 80s and 90s. Most of them didn't make it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Kistler Aerospace and Rotary Rocket and all these different ventures befell various, uh, were befallen by various fates. But they were all kind of underfinanced and, and, and big reaches, you know, as a bridge too far for them. And we were reminded once again of how difficult space flight is. Mm-hmm. But come 2002, 2008, 2010, with SpaceX and Blue Origin and Virgin and others coming along, just on the launch side or the tourist space flight side in the case of, of a couple of them, and then all the smaller companies like Planet Labs with their incredible CubeSat programs mm-hmm. and Maiden Space and so forth, We really are seeing kind of a new era, and I think the magic of this is that people can make money at it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you dangle a a profit motive in front of Americans in particular, they rise to the occasion. Capitalism hates a vacuum, and here it was in both metaphorical and literal senses. Mm -hmm. So um, that's really kind of the crux of it. And then if there's sort of a a core message in the book, I mean, there's a bunch of them because I talk about you know, infrastructure in space, what it's going to take to really build out the kind of infrastructure we need to be there on a regular, repeatable basis and do this routinely and safely and make money and so forth. Mm-hmm. I talked about investment. I interviewed Steve Jurbitson, who was uh, the gentleman who basically bailed out SpaceX in 2008 when they were running out of money with a couple hundred million dollars. Mm-hmm. That's what's reported. It's not official. Um I talk about international politics, I talk about China, I talk about Russia, I talk about a lot of stuff. But I think one of the core messages that I found, and this isn't me being particularly smart, this is me interviewing about 40 people from NASA and SpaceX and Blue Origin and United Launch Alliance and the German Space Agency and the Japanese Space Agency and what I could get out of China, Russian Space Agency and so forth, and asking them you know, what's your wisdom on, on this new era? And the general message was that while we have all these areas of strength, we have NASA is still the preeminent space agency in the world. We have all the private entrepreneurs over on the other side, the, you know, internet billionaires and their clan and old aerospace, which is now becoming reinvented aerospace like ULA and Boeing and Northrop Grumman and so forth. Mm-hmm. And, um, then we have the international sector over here where these three overlap. When you can make that work, you've really you've got something. And, and for me, that's kind of the bright spot of all this is can we combine those things? And that's something Buzz Aldrin's been preaching for decades. Mm-hmm. You know, let's, let's really bring this together. In particular, he's got good things to say about China, and we all understand that there are problems there. Mm-hmm. You know, there's intellect, intellectual property issues. There's the ITAR, uh, ITAR and Wolf Amendment legal uh, prohibitions and so forth. But if we can figure out a way to work together, I think that's where the magic really happens. And I was quite encouraged. I was talking to uh, a gentleman at JPL who's in charge of their their planetary program. And um, I, I said, what do you think will happen with ITAR? And he said, well, as you probably know, the first collaboration between the United States and the Soviet Union in the 1960s wasn't with manned space flight. It was with robotic space flight, which is true. You know, it was the early to mid-60s. We were already sharing results from our unmanned probes. Mm -hmm. And he said, I think that's going to happen with China again. I think the stakes are lower. It's easier. It may not be unilateral, but but we'll start sharing with China and other partners. And he hopes that that will pave the way for true collaboration with them in a meaningful sense across the board. And I think that's pretty exciting. Mm -hmm. That kind of leads into my next question, which was, um, what challenges do you see in this, in, in space exploration and commercialization um, that you're most concerned about? Is it this collaboration thing, or are there other issues you see? Gosh, there are a few, aren't there? Yeah, so, <laughs> I know. I mean, <laughs> you know, so I, I was looking at that, that, that tweet from Jim Bridenstine the other day to Elon about, hey, congratulations, uh, will you spend some time working on my rockets, please? I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> I mean, I think there's a big challenge right there. Um, NASA still has to figure out how they can really work effectively with private industry, not just changing their relationship with traditional aerospace, which they're doing by getting away from cost plus contracts, which just means, you know, endless ups and overs, as we saw during the space race and beyond, but also, you know, how to deal with privately owned companies that 
often go off can can go off and do what they want and and musk has been kind of a banner example of that not a bad way he's just doing his thing i think a lot of us would look at it and say good for you you know this is what's going to this is going to drive this bus. We're finally going to going to go places, and we just saw that the other day with Starship. Mm-hmm. I hope that thing flies. Um, on the international side, I think the big challenge is just uh, finding a way to be fair across the board, and, and not just fair to American perceptions, but fair to everybody's perception, which is tough. You look at a space program like China or India right now. India is going to be flying uh, crude capsules over the next couple of years mm-hmm. and they are unabashedly nationalistic mm-hmm. you know uh, even the the white paper that china put out a couple of years ago about their space goals you know said well we're gonna we're gonna be green environmentally friendly and we're doing this for all mankind and all that stuff but it's really about china it's about the greatness of china uh, paraphrasing again and about uh, proving you know our technological savvy and that, that we're the equal to other powers and we will go beyond and all that and, you know, that's okay. I mean, that's kind of where we were in the 60s and 70s and uh, ditto with the Soviet Union. So it's understandable, but somehow we're going to have to figure out a way to move past that to make internationalism really work effectively. And uh, it, I felt like we took a big step backwards for understandable reasons when Pence came out a few months ago and talked about the lunar landing goal by 2024. Mm-hmm. It sort of, you know, he led off with uh, we have an existential threat from Russia and China. And I get the China part. Yeah. Russia, you know, I think he was talking it sort of couch phrases about, you know, orbital weapons and things like that, basically non-human programs. Mm-hmm. But human space, yeah, I don't have a crystal ball, but when we stop buying rides on Soyuz, I think it's going to be a real problem because their budgets are less than a tenth of NASA's now. So, yeah, that's going to be tough. Do you think... Um... I'm trying to figure out, I mean, you probably know the answer to this or have a good answer for it. You know, why, why this sudden, uh, interest in space in the last decade or so? What, what changed? Is it because of the internet millionaires amassing this money that they could do, build their pyramids, so to speak? Or, um, you know, what, what happened? How did it happen? Well, it's interesting. If you talk to SpaceX and, and Blue Origin, you know, there's a certain corporate lore that goes along with working for that company. So I was in both cases talking to the presidents of the companies. And I said, so, you know, what what burns in your gut? What makes this worth doing? And in both cases, it was, you know, the, the core people here were inspired by Apollo more than anything, but by the space age in general, and Star Wars and Star Trek and popular culture, but really by the exploits of that first space age, and are tired of waiting, and they're wealthy enough that they can do what they want. Uh, Musk's original idea was just to send a greenhouse up to Mars. He wanted to send a little experiment up, see if plants could grow there, and he was going to do it on top of a Russian rocket, which he went over to try and buy from the Russians, and as uh, Lore has it from one of the, I think the only guy that went with him, because that was very early on in SpaceX, that was I think 2001 or something, um, they went over there, and the general not only didn't take them seriously and snarled at them, but spat on Elon's shoe, oh. which is kind of a that's kind of a Russian thing to do, you know, <laughs> out of my sight. So, um, you know, that kind of lit his fuse, and he said, "Okay, okay, NASA, okay, Russia, I'm I'm going to build my own rockets, and I'll do it cheaper than you, and they'll be reusable." Um, so, I think a lot of it's just the fact that they can, because these billionaires have been created, and it was interesting. Talking especially to the Europeans, but also the Japanese, I said, when do you see um, similar kind of enterprises taking off in your countries on the private sector? And in both cases, they said, not for a very long time. Mm-hmm. We don't have Internet billionaires like you do, at least not on that scale. We don't have the kind of tax structure that you do. We don't have the business structure that you do. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be difficult for us to match that. And I thought that was interesting. So I think that that helps a lot. But as much as anything, again, and I don't mean to oversimplify it because there's a lot going on here, mm-hmm. but there's money to be made. And it's it's kind of easy and glib to say, well, there's going to be astronaut uh, asteroid mining, mining and we'll make money with that. That's eh, probably a long ways off. Mm-hmm. We've seen a couple of companies try and they didn't make it. But there's a lot of money to be made with NASA service contracts. There's a lot of money to be made with private launch contracts. SpaceX has captured, I think, last count, about half of them. Mm-hmm. Um 
and there's a lot of be money to be made in other services and support areas. And hopefully, in the not too distant future, if we can get this key component going, which is infrastructure, mm-hmm. and by that I mean low Earth and cislunar infrastructure, so mm-hmm. uh, orbital fuel storage and uh, water extraction and processing on the moon and the making of fuel there, and ultimately, you know, metal and glass and 3D printing parts and habitats and that kind of thing. Now you've really got something. But there's one more component of that which is important, which is valuation on this stuff. It needs to be commoditized. Mm -hmm. So NASA or somebody is eventually going to have to step up, unless it's just a completely uh, freebooting open market thing. But NASA could kickstart that that by saying, look, we'll pay this much per gallon of liquid hydrogen. We'll pay this much per gallon of liquid oxygen. We'll pay this much for a a block of aluminum from the moon, you know. Mm -hmm. And... um, now you've got a, 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 a basically an exchange going on up there that has set prices, and now you can turn to investors, and not just rich billionaires from the internet, but guys like you and me, mm-hmm. whatever we have to invest, and say, uh, hey, what do you say? You know, here's the guaranteed return. All we have to do is go up there and provide that stuff, and NASA will buy it to go on to Mars and beyond, or supply it to other people. And now you've really got something. Do you think Artemis is right now the way it's conceived? Is it? Just a cool idea that I'm not saying it's not going to get done, but can it yeah. can it lead to a real? Is it business infrastructure development in huh. space? So the other way of asking that question is: Did we learn from Apollo? Don't build a closed end system that, at least in terms of perception, can't go beyond the moon, mm-hmm. um, or or go repeatedly and reliably. I hope so. You know, I felt like the 2024 announcement with these limited goals and the smaller a constrained gateway and so forth felt like kind of a step backwards and it felt like you know you're doing the apollo thing again which was just enough to do the job mm-hmm. i mean the saturn 5 was enough rocket to do a lot of things but it was expensive but certainly the command module was robust and kind of flexible lunar module was a one-trick pony and barely capable of what it, i mean it was brilliant and it never failed mm-hmm. but it was just enough to get you down there and get you home after after a few days so are we doing that again kind of feels like a little bit, but I, I hope there's enough wisdom in there. I mean, they've got the National Space Council and notably all the advisory people on there. Scott Pace is a really smart guy. There's a lot of smart people on the council. There's a lot of smart people on the advisory board. And, you know, I see some of the stuff that goes back and forth. And, you know, they're being pretty clear about don't 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 do this in a, in a closed mold again. Make sure you, you leave lots of points of connection and open architecture so that we can move on and do something lasting and permanent, meaningful and expandable. Mm-hmm. So that's my kind of weaselly non-answer. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, one thing that worries me, and I think you, you see it written about occasionally, but not enough is, you know, there's a lot being written about. We don't have a lander, so they're trying to procure a lander and so forth. EVA suits, you know, the last one we built was probably 1971 by, uh, was it Dover? I think that built them. Mm-hmm. And, we don't have any. So we've got suits that are probably capable of letting you get out and stand on the moon for 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. But if you want to do work there, I mean, those Apollo suits were brilliant and rugged and multi-multi-layered and strong and robust. And if you don't have something like that, you're taking a big chance. And even now, I think more now, actually, than the space age, we had lost a crew in the space age. to say Apollo 13 didn't make it home. Mm-hmm. It would have been horrible and would have shut down for a while, and they probably would have finished the program at least out to 17, I think. Mm-hmm. But we're so risk-adverse now that if we had another disaster up there, I think there would be a huge hue and cry, and I don't know what would happen. Yeah, that kind of, so one, one issue I think about, between government and private is uh, quality control like how much um how much do you put into that how much are you required to put into that and kind of thinking ahead yeah. i think of uh people you know let's say private moon base you know with people you know working in privately made suits and such you know who who is in charge of making sure that it it you know it has the right um qualities or specs you know is it you know, OH, you know, uh, Office of, uh, I forget the government one, the o- OSHA or whatever. Like, who, right, right. Who would mandate that stuff? Well, that's, that's a really interesting question. I didn't go into it a whole lot in the book, but, but recently we've seen, uh, at least in theory, the space station being opened up for tourist flights soon. Mm-hmm. And, uh, when the question came up, well, who's training the people that are going? 
the NASA said you guys are, whoever's sending them. <laughs> SpaceX, that's you, you know? Well, do they know how to do that? They've been working with NASA astronauts for a while now for the Crew Dragon, so I hope they do. But now if you're talking about tourists on the moon or long-term mining operations or what have you, with human beings anyway, mm-hmm. I mean, let's just talk about spacesuit seals. You know what lunar soil is like. It's never had any weather. It's sharp. It's nasty. It's abrasive. Mm-hmm. It's potentially uh, carcinogenic. There's all kinds of problems with it. So you got to have a whole structured set of rules and regulations around that. You've got to have inspectors. You've got to have safety so- officers. You've got to have Gene Kranz's famous four-inch thick rule books, you know. Mm-hmm. And somebody's got to enforce that. And I, I, it's an interesting question. Is it NASA and OSHA and FAA and... I don't know who else. How many other agencies in the alphabet soup would would join in on that? Mm-hmm. And that's just us. Then if you get start, you know, let's say the Moon Village comes along with Europe and you start getting international involvement, the Chinese are going to have their standards. We don't know a whole lot about them in terms of safety and regulation because we're not privy to it. Mm-hmm. The Russians have got theirs, and they're really good at it, but, you know, there's... I'm going to go out on a little bit of a limb here, but their hardware is a little rough and ready. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not going to make any jokes about the hole in the Soyuz because that would be unfair. But, you know, they've been flying the same spacecraft they designed to beat Apollo to the moon since 1965. <laughs> and it's evolved and it's it's wonderfully robust and flexible, but mm-hmm. it's kind of basic, you know. So, um, yeah, I don't know who's going to be watching over that and how you're going to figure that out. And that's that is something I talked about a bit is is rules and regulation what's enough without being overbearing because you hear spacex and blue and ula and these other companies saying you know back off the regulations if you want us to do this on time and at a price mm-hmm. you can't regulate well how much do you loosen the grip before things rockets start exploding and things start not working and the uh, seals leak on 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 docking units and so forth so it's it's a tenuous mix yeah Outland, Outland, that movie comes to mind. Not quite the same analog, yeah. yet, but uh, it just makes me think of that. Well, and you know, if you're going to be in a big space station with a wall full of glass, don't take shotguns. Yeah. <laughs> learn that in Outland, and then we learned it again in Ad Astra, by golly. Don't go shooting a gun inside a spacecraft. It's never good. <laughs> Did you see it yet? Not yet, but I, I want to. Would you recommend it? <sighs> you know... Uh, Rotten Tomatoes, which is a critics aggregation site, the critics, I think, averaged 84%. Mm-hmm. In an interesting reversal, what usually happens, the audience was hovering at about 45. Huh. I thought, that's interesting, because it's usually the other way around. The critics go, this isn't art. The audience go, yeah, but I, I enjoyed it. Yeah. It's pretty dark, a little mm-hmm. maudlin. There's a lot of brooding going on. Uh. Pitt's performance is Oscar-worthy. The effects out by Neptune are great, but... You'll see some holes, some science holes that'll probably bother you and some magic rocket juice and stuff like that. But uh, go see it and let's talk. I guess that didn't harm the Martian too much, though, a few science issues, scientific issues. Well, they were a little less um, gaping in the Martian, I think, even though I wasn't crazy about that final ascent sequence. And I certainly wasn't crazy about taping a bunch of plastic sheeting over a a hole in the side of your station when you have an atmosphere inside, you basically don't have one outside. And I was surprised, you know, when he was working with all that Martian soil in the trowel, which has got, you know, tons of perchlorate in it, that his eyes weren't fizzing closed and all his mucous membranes weren't, you know, swelling up because Martian soil, as far as we know, is pretty nasty stuff. But hmm. the thing about the Martian was it was kind of chipper. You know, he, Matt Damon made it kind of happy and fun, and, oh, look, there's cute little Pathfinder. Isn't that nice? And I'm going to crack some jokes while I'm wandering around. That is not Ad Astra. It's, it's, it's got about the same humor level as 2001 A Space Odyssey, which is hmm. like the discovery, long and flat. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Well, do you see any challenges um, in all of this that could be easily that could easily be fixed or addressed right now. Do you see any kind of policy issues or anything that some holdups that you don't like? Well, like I said, I was I was talking to the smart kids in the room and trying to do justice to their opinions and not throw in too many of my own because you know if it's historical, I'm quite comfortable doing that because I've been spending a long uh, you know 30 years learning about it. Mm-hmm. Policy was a little fresher. 
Mm-hmm. So I tried to not editorialize too much, but I think on a personal level, I'd like to see the levelest possible playing ground for private investment, which means not giving traditional aerospace contractors a whole bunch more money than you give the new guys just because they asked for it. Mm. You know, I'm, I think we're all a little puzzled by why, uh, ULA got so much for their, um, I'm sorry, I think it was Boeing. Mm-hmm. for CST-100, why they got so much for the CST-100 when SpaceX got, I think, only about 60% or two-thirds of that for the Crew Dragon. Mm-hmm. Now, you might bring in the logic, well, he was already further along, but, you know, that was that was money out of his pocket. So I, I don't really understand how that creates a fair and level playing field. I don't think guys like Elon Musk should have to sue the Air Force to be able to bid on contracts for launches. Mm-hmm. I don't think uh, ULA should have, they don't anymore, but shouldn't have gotten a standing check every year of upwards of a billion dollars just to be on standby to launch. Mm-hmm. I understand that it's crucial to have ready launch vehicles for military needs, mm-hmm. but hopefully within the next couple of years that will include a lot of people. It already includes SpaceX in practical terms. Mm-hmm. And I read just the other day, I think, that Blue Origin is now considering also having to sue for rights to bid on contracts. Mm-hmm. Um you know, same goes with the lunar lander. The, the a bunch of material just went out about that a few weeks ago, and then again today I saw another headline about it. Who's going to get it? I don't know. In the final analysis, but you know, Jeff Bezos looks like he's been working on it for a long time. I know it's just a mock-up, yeah. but it was really big. And in very simple terms, that imp- I, I'm kind of like my Labrador. Look at the big <laughs> spaceship, you know. Um, so he may have a long way to go. Oh, and you know, NASA's smart. I mean, I've worked for them off and on for years, and those people are really brilliant. They're just a little constrained by what's evolved since 1958. You know, mm-hmm. when you look back at the space age years and interview people, I've interviewed countless people from that era. I've gone through those documents again and again and again. You know, as a writer of history, it's tough because you look up a NASA reference from 1965 on the Saturn V. And the number looks kind of funny, and then you look up another one, it's different. You look up a third and a fourth one, and they're different. You realize these guys weren't worrying about people 50 years later writing books about what they did. They just wanted to get the job done. Yeah. So it was moving very fast. Um, if you look at – I'm going a little off, off topic here, but if you look at Skylab, mm-hmm. repair of Skylab with Pete Conrad's crew, the first crew up there, mm-hmm. they were doing stuff that you wouldn't dream of today without hundreds of hours of simulation. They had done some simulation, but they had to get up there in a hurry. The chances that he took climbing out on that thing with no handholds to speak of, with rope and basically a utility company cutter, a a tree pruner, (laughs) to go out and snip the cable and that thing would swing out. And every time that happened, the rope would would twang and and he and the other astronaut would go tumbling ASS over tea kettle, as he said again and again, Mm -hmm. Um, you know. Those were very daring times. I don't want to make space more dangerous, but I think where I'm going with this is NASA is going to have to find a way to loosen up some of their regulatory structure, some of their concerns about risk and the way they do business, because at least if my time at JPL and Johnson were any indication, you know, there are certain questions you ask that somebody has to turn around and pull a three-inch book off a shelf and start thumbing through pages to find the 14 pages of answers that constrain that. And they're all due to things that went wrong and that they want to keep from going wrong again. But when you're that guarded, you know, if it's the first one or two times something goes wrong and you make rules, that makes sense. By the time you're on Rule 27 for a similar problem, you're starting to glue your own feet to the floor. Yeah. You mentioned something a a bit earlier that made me... um about the contracts, um, and obviously NASA isn't part of DOD, but it sounds like um, these new companies are sort of chipping away a little bit at the mili- military-industrial complex that's built up over the last, what, 70, 70 years? Whenever Eisenhower warned us, yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess since World War II, right? Yeah. Really? Yeah. So... So I wonder if that, and it's just kind of a comment, but I wonder if um, these big companies see that as a threat or they're just going to try to, you know, take control of these companies, you know. I I think we've seen them circle the wagons to an extent. Mm -hmm. Um, And certainly uh, this is just conjecture, but it wouldn't surprise me if the Air Force's response to SpaceX wanting to bid and being forced to sue 
Yeah, there might have been some influence from private industry, you think? I don't know. Um, it's just a guess. Oh, my God, there are black suburbans showing up in front of my house. No, not really. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, I think it's been tough for them. I interviewed Tori Bruno from ULA, who was their president, and uh, I asked him some of those questions. And, you know, we had a media relations person on the line, so I was only going to get so much. But I said, what? You know, what's the landscape for you now? You've got these up-and-coming companies, SpaceX in particular, who are very aggressive. They may stumble, but so far not really. And, you know, how are you meeting this challenge? I wanted to say, how are you reinventing yourselves to stay competitive? But fortunately, he said it. He said, well, we have to sort of reinvent ourselves to stay competitive. I said, thank you. And he said, um, We've, they had reduced the parts count in the Atlas substantially. They had reduced the labor force by 30%. They had reduced cost by 40-something percent. So they are working to streamline things. Now we got the Vulcan coming as another example of how they sort of reinvent themselves. It's just ULA, of course. And, uh, you know, fewer parts, lower expenses. They're going to drop the engines and catch them with a helicopter, we hope, um, and so forth. So, yeah, I think they're responding the, the old school companies are responding very aggressively by streamlining operations. I'm not sure they like it. Mm-hmm. No, I don't think they would have if they hadn't had to. Northrop Grumman, um, Lockheed Martin, same thing. But it was time, mm-hmm. and somebody had to come along and show them how. Now, the worst, one of my worst fears, and I was thinking of this when I was watching the uh, press conference about Starship the other day with with Musk. You know, if that for some reason takes a lot longer than planned or is just undoable for some reason, which I can't see, but I suppose it's possible. There's going to be a lot of people saying, see, we told you so. And I would hate to see that happen because uh, Musk and and Bezos in his way, I mean, he's been moving slower and more uh, incrementally, but here's a guy who said, I'm going to build a half million thrust pound thrust engine. Why not? How hard could it be? And I'm going to make it run on methane. That'll be cool. And it'll be clean and reusable. And he did it. And not only did he do it, that was a big enough achievement, but he's selling it to ULA. So we have this coopetition. Where have you seen that before? I don't see that very often. You don't see Ford selling engines to Chevy, you know, yeah. very often. Um, so I thought that was remarkable. And that's kind of a whole, at least in, in space, to me, that was kind of a whole new model, at least on that scale. Because Bezos could have said, look, I'm building a new Glenn. I'm going to monopolize that market. You watch. Mm. He said, no, I'll share. I'm sure there was sound business logic behind that, but it sure gave ULA a good option. Yeah. I just have a few more questions. I don't want to keep you too much longer. No no sweat. Um, Have you encountered any issues? Have you come across any issues on this subject that uh, people aren't talking about that they should be discussing? Well, the book was finished before Artemis, so I, I wasn't at that point talking about <laughs> lunar excursion suits and, and life support and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I had a long talk with Bill Gerstenmeyer at one point, and we were talking about uh, proving technology in space. And, and, and I, I do talk about this a little bit, but I think it's a topic that deserves some consideration because I think, a lot, at least in, in the lay public, I think a lot of people don't really understand. He said, you know, we build machines all the time that we test on Earth for weeks or months, and they work great. And you take them up in space, and they fail in a couple of days, sometimes sooner. Hmm. And he said, it's just you can't test that stuff on Earth. You can test radiation exposure. You can test temperature extremes. But you can't test weightlessness except for, you know, the 20 or 30 seconds you get in a parabolic flight on the vomit comet. Hmm. So, you know, it's hard. So that goes from spacesuits to habitats, sometimes advanced propulsion systems. Um, one of the things that's going up on the Mars 2020 rover is the MOXIE experiment, which is you know, box butt yay, mm-hmm. that's going to convert a little bit of atmosphere into oxygen or extract. Mm-hmm. And that's really exciting. Well, we know how to do that. It's a Sabatier reaction, and it works just fine. But as they, NASA will point out, yeah, but we don't know if it works just fine on Mars for sure. So we're going to test it, which is great. Because yeah. not only does that mean that NASA can scale it up if they get around to going to Mars, but it means that, as has been the case since 1958, everybody else on the planet Earth gets to benefit from what NASA does with our tax dollars. I mean, when they have these breakthroughs and achievements, the vast bulk of it is public information very quickly. Mm-hmm. And you and I both know that Musk and Bezos and um, 
even Branson and others, have benefited incredibly by all the heavy lifting that NASA and the Soviet Union did in the 1960s. I mean, they invented spaceflight, those two countries. Mm -hmm. And uh, without all that work, these guys would not have gotten nearly as far as they have in such short time with the cost they've had. Do you think NASA should be the one doing the heavy lifting on other future technologies in this endeavor? Or is it just... Well, I talked to Lori Garber about that, who was the uh, deputy administrator of NASA under under Charlie Bolden for Obama. And I've known her since the 80s. She's a really wonderful, smart woman who speaks unflinchingly, mm. which you don't always get with government, you know? Right. And she said, look, you know, we've been through this, and she was for years also uh, head of the uh, Air, Airline Pilots Association, I think it's called. And she said, look, we've been through this as civil aviation, you know. It was invented, in that case, for war, just like ICBMs were um, back in the Cold, Cold War. Um, this, the, the airplanes were evolved by the companies that built them, and we had this fledgling kind of civilian aviation going, but it was dangerous and kind of all over the map and very risky and certainly not safe for civilians. And then the government stepped in with airmail and the FAA and, and charter service and so forth and made it work and then kind of took their hands off. They still regulate it, but private industry ran with the ball. And basically she was saying, let's do the same thing with space. So I think, and she's not a fan of the SLS. That's not a secret. So I think, you know, the best thing NASA can do is what it does best, which is, push the boundaries, explore, get us beyond Earth orbit, please, as soon as possible, preferably with human beings in, in the not-too-distant future, and really pioneer new things and let private industry, well-regulated and intelligently handled, build the hardware and fly the routine stuff. You know, we we saw with shuttle how it tried reusable spacecraft. Now, to be fair, it worked very well most of the time, it just never got close to what was expected of it. It was grossly oversold to, to Congress. And, oh, yeah, we'll be flying every week and we'll just land and hose it off and empty the ashtrays and off <laughs> you go again, you know. And that never happened. Um, it was a bridge too far for the time. I'm not sure government can ever do that kind of thing well. We've seen this again with SLS. We have another $4 billion with a B this year going to SLS and Orion. And if you, at least at the current rate of expenditure, if you gave that to SpaceX or ULA or eventually Blue Origin, they'd have us off this planet many, many, many times for that amount of money instead of spending on a designing one rocket and spacecraft. Orion will be great once it's finished. SLS will be okay once it's finished. I don't know how many they'll fly because they don't have a big supply of engines for it. But, you know, it's an old-style rocket that's just sinking the ship in terms of money. So I'd like to see NASA really sort of step aside from that, which, of course, means getting Congress to back off and stop trying to... Hmm pander to their districts and just say, okay, we're going to let private industry do it. So if, if, if Shelby can't get his head wrapped around the idea that SLS is going to go the way of a white elephant eventually, which it might, um, then let's have SpaceX and Blue Origin open plants in his district and then everybody's happy. Yeah. So a bit of a crystal ball question. Um, what advances, <laughs> immediate advances can you, do you sort of see for space exploration, and that includes either in robotics, AI, propulsion systems, communication systems, anything, you know, even the small things people aren't thinking about. Well, since I'm not a technologist, I'll just kind of throw out some stuff that I've been hearing from people uh, who we're looking forward. So I was at a, a press conference at um, Aerojet Rocketdyne a couple of years ago, and one of the speakers was talking about advanced space propulsion, you know, not leaving the planet, but, but how you get around once you're up there. And she was the chief engineer on the project, and I was listening, or the head of the division, I was listening and listening, and I went through afterwards, and I said, what you're talking about sounds an awful lot like Nerva from the 1960s. And she said, that's exactly what we're working on. And I thought, oh, it's back, thank goodness. Now, is that the best kind of atomic propulsion? It's fission-based, and it still needs fuel that you spray over the reactor and poof out, it goes the back out the back. And I think the specific impulse is about twice of what a chemical rocket can do with the same amount of mass. Mm -hmm. But that twice is a lot. I'd like to see something on order of magnitude better than that. So it's, you know, somewhere between that and Project Orion, mm -hmm. not the spacecraft, but the old Project Orion with the atomic bombs coming out the back. Right. Um, 
but you know, there's a lot going on in advanced propulsion. That's very exciting. I think there's a good chance that the smaller company may end up making a big breakthrough. I know of some work that's being done fairly quietly on some advanced propulsion systems that could prove to be revolutionary. Um, let's see. There was another area I was thinking of. Uh, so I mentioned communications, robotics, AI. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So on the AI side and the communication side, one thing I, I, I discovered while I was writing these books for JPL over the last couple of years, um, which I wouldn't have known otherwise because they don't talk about it a lot. And when they do, it's usually jammed in a corner of their website somewhere mm. or a tiny press release. The machines are becoming more and more capable as they become smaller and less energy hungry. Mm. So, for instance, there's a guy that they recruited from uh, Qualcomm, I think, who came into JPL. He's he's very quirky, interesting guy, very friendly, just just little little uh, off center from what we're used to but brilliant and he had taken radar units mm-hmm. he'd taken radar units that used to be about the size of a microwave not the dish but the processing unit and miniaturized them to the size of a pencil eraser and they take that much less energy so they can run off you know a microvolt or two or something mm-hmm. and and across the board, whether you're talking about that or AI capabilities, you know, JPL is not on the cutting edge of AI, but they're certainly on the cutting edge of how to use AI in space mm-hmm. with really old computer systems. Because even now, if you're talking about Curiosity rover or the orbital spacecraft that are going out to Mars or beyond the solar system, they're using power PC chips that are baselined at, I don't know, 1998. I mean, they're really slow mm-hmm. because those are the only ones that have been radiation hardened, all yeah. of them done by BAE systems, and um, they're very good, but they're slow, and they cost between four hundred thousand and seven hundred fifty thousand dollars per chip. Mm-hmm. So, uh, the fact that they can do what they do with those is pretty astonishing. So, when you look at it all collectively, one of the projects I was writing about was uh, was uh, working out by icy moons with with probes, and they were talking about combining these different. These, these different bodies of, of technology that they're working on. So advanced AI, so the machine is self-aware in terms, not self-aware like, oh, I'm Mr. Spock, but right. self-aware in terms of I know what's wrong with that solar panel and I know how many how many bits are burned out in my process, in my memory, and I know exactly how well that robotic claw is working and all that. To have that self-awareness to rewrite its own mission parameters as it flies, that's not something I would have thought about until I saw what they were doing. Mm-hmm. But it's thinking on the go, and it doesn't need to wait for a signal four hours away from Earth. You know, It just says, okay, this is what i got to do. And, oh, there's a geyser squirting out of Enceladus up ahead of me. I better figure out how to, how to maneuver around that or a gravel field You know, mm-hmm. that happens to be orbiting around one of these moons. So between that and the fact that they're smaller and less power-hungry than ever before – you not only have more capable spacecraft on the robotic side, but you've got them much smaller and with smaller batteries and lighter power supplies. And even if you're talking about nuclear power, you know, one of these plutonium fuel pellets, mm-hmm. it can be small and less expensive. And now it gets really cheap to go out there and do this stuff if you can get the bureaucratic overhead costs out of it. Mm-hmm. So once again, maybe we turn to private industry. Mm-hmm. And now you're exploring the solar system with CubeSats, with bigger dishes. Oh, and by the way... They're also working on inflatable antenna for these things that has software in it that makes it look like a parabola, even though it's a sphere. Mm-hmm. And so now you can have an irregular launch fairing, an antenna that will expand out to be 14 feet wide and have huge bit rates mm. on something the size of a cigar box. <laughs> so wow. it's pretty exciting. Yeah. So I, I, I guess what we were talking about was, was potential impediments, but what I'm getting all worked up about is how good it can be and how quickly it can happen and how cheap it can be if they can just get some of the, the roadblocks out of the way. The roadblocks at this point are still investment and regulation and, I guess, in some cases, just NASA's way of doing business. But, again, as we saw, you know, the other side of that Pence announcement was, look, aerospace industry, if you can't do what we're asking you to do in a timely fashion, we'll find somebody who can. And that was a clear message to, I think, Boeing and possibly to some other contractors saying you need to step this up or we're just going to turn to guys like SpaceX and Blue who are also behind, but but they're not costing as much money. Do you know if um, 
Is there any uh, resource or someone uh, someone who uh, brings together um, new science discoveries that could um, feed into space exploration advances? Like, is there a, a clearinghouse of even the smallest little material science discovery or anything? You know, anyone who's feeding all these inputs in? Well, in terms of direct experience, the only ones I've seen were at JPL, where they have a very aggressive program to... Uh, join with industry, you know, sometimes it's to bring them in on projects, but oftentimes it's it's just to not even sell their discoveries because I'm not sure they can given how, how NASA's charter works. They just give away the technology and say, look, here's a discovery we made. Go do something wonderful and cool with it. Mm -hmm. Keep us posted. Um, so that's very aggressive. I think NASA does that across the board. I'm just familiar with how JPL does it a little better. Yeah. And there was something... I think it was the Aerospace Corporation. Of course, a lot of what they do is classified and proprietary, but they do have kind of a, uh, it's almost like a big play center, you know, where they have block games and tables where people can work together. You know, it's one of these kind of new age, uh, sort of collaboration centers where you can sit on the, on the floor and, eat graham crackers and feel like a kid and incredible things can happen. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure how much industry crossover was happening there. I, I know there's some discussion of, you know, bringing in other folks, but of course they've got all kinds of, of government restrictions to deal with. Um, so there's a little bit of that. I'd like to see more of it again. You know, NASA ultimately uh, in fairly quick order usually gives away virtually everything they do and industry is able to just gobble up and run with it. Mm -hmm. The only time I saw that not happen, it was kind of weird. I was writing a book, I don't know, probably 10 years ago about Apollo. And I was on the Internet one Thursday night, and I'm typing away, and I'm looking up schematics for the Saturn V. I think it's something arcane like the Ulidge rockets, you know, the, the rockets that that, that drive when, the, when they're staging, that pushes the stage back for a second to get the fuel to settle. And um, the next day I went in and pulled it up, and I got a 404 error. Oh, I must have a check my plug, everything's fine, you know, and I'm looking and I'm looking. So I finally called a guy at headquarters that I kind of knew on the public relations side, and I said, where's all the data? He said, we took it down. I said, why? And apparently there had been this massive theft of material by China yeah. that was supposed to be somewhat classified. So NASA just kind of closed the gate on everything. And so if you were in the middle of a project, you were back to the library and the three-foot-long card drawer with the cards in it and all that. And I thought, oh, my God. A week later, I was on the Internet, and I found it again. I thought, oh, great, they changed their mind. And then I looked, and I realized it was a Chinese server that was set up as a mirror. Um, so that really gave me the creeps, but yeah. public service in another way. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I think going back to the library and doing the old school paper research, maybe you'll discover something that way that you hadn't thought about, you know? Well, the nice thing is, as you know, guys who are over the age of 30 remember, well, maybe 45 at this point, there is a certain tactile pleasure to doing it in a library. And I think we remember things differently than we see in a book because of the coordination between hand and eye and motion, all that. That's been studied to death. Hmm. Um on the other hand, I really like not having to go to the shelf and find out that the book's overdue or was loaned to another library or was lost and never replaced. Right. So, you know, working from my office, which is one set of stairs below my my sleeping chambers, is really a delight. Mm -hmm. And I do enjoy going out to the JPL archives and, and other NASA facilities or industry facilities. i got to look stuff up, but... Well, you can't beat working off the internet if the information's good. Like I said, a lot of the times you gotta do multiple, multiple, multiple cross checks because some of the old stuff just isn't accurate. Hmm. All part of the game. Yeah. So where can people find your work on the web? Uh, I have a website that I, I'm glad you asked that because it reminds me I need to do an update this week called pilebooks.com. That's P-Y-L-E books.com. Mm -hmm. I've got a podcast called Cool Space News on iHeart that I do out of KFI Radio here out of Los Angeles, and then I have weekly and bi-monthly radio appearances in L.A. and Chicago and the Eastern Seaboard and a bunch of other places. Cool. Uh, so yeah. that's all, all the questions I have. Do you have any final words, thoughts, or words? Well, yes. Um, so I, I've been talking about Space 2.0 and the new space age for probably seven years, and I 
did do a lot of talks. I was just out the Smithsonian last week, you know, going on and on about this stuff and that those poor people. I think I went on for 98 minutes, which was the slot, but that's a long time for what audience. And oh, my hands are going everywhere and I got my PowerPoints up and I just, I get very excited. So about five or six years ago, I was talking to a group of kids in San Diego who are aerospace engineering students. They're, you know, early, early to mid twenties. And I was going on and on about the Apollo program and these incredible missions of exploration going off to the mountains and the valleys of the moon every, as often as every 10 weeks and all that. Cause it was an amazing time to be alive. And, um, I'm talking and talking and talking. And I looked down the front row. There's a small group. There's only about 30 kids. And there's three of them crying in the front row. What did I say? You know, did I say something improper, politically incorrect? What did I do? And so I stopped and I said, I'm sorry, did I say something upset you? And the girl in the middle said, no. She said, you just have no idea how lucky you were to be alive then. And I thought, my gosh, she's right. It, I hadn't really thought about it. I just thought about, you know, getting old and having to eat more oatmeal and that kind of thing. So to hear that from that young lady really kind of, straightened me out and I thought, yeah, I was incredibly fortunate. And the other thing I'd like to share is uh, a couple years before that, I was interviewing Gene Kranz for a History Channel documentary I was producing on Apollo 11. And we had, it kind of fits with the end of our interview here. We had been talking for about an hour, hour, 15 minutes. And I said, um, that's all I got. Do you have any other, anything else you'd like to say? And, you know, I used to do World War II, docu- World War II documentaries and, and space documentaries and everything. And, and usually with those interviews, especially if the guys are older, it's like, nah, we've covered it. You know, I need, need to go drink my Enfamil or whatever. And uh, he said, yeah. And he looked down for a second. He looked up at me with those steely missile man eyes of his and said, what America will dare, America can do. And I thought, I mean, hearing it from anybody is kind of cool, but hearing that from Gene Kranz, which I had never heard or read before, was sort of like a laser beam into the eyes, you know. Yeah. And I've remembered that ever since. And I think I'd update it to, you know, what we can dare, we can do collectively. But, but it's a good sentiment, and and I I try to remember that when I'm writing this stuff. Yeah, cool. Yeah, I t- I'm sorry we went well over time, but I, I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening. The best way to support this podcast is to rate it on Apple Podcasts. You can get more information at spacewalksmoneytalks.com. You can also follow us on YouTube at spacewalksmoneytalks, on Instagram at spacewalksmoneytalks, on Facebook at spacewalksmoneytalks, or on Twitter at spacewalksmt. Thank you for listening.